Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In this presentation, you'll learn about the core creed of the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New, the Shema, and how that relates to the smattering of texts in which Jesus may be called God. If Yahweh alone is God, then how can Jesus be God too? Are there two gods, or is something else going on? The answer is the principle of agency. Jesus can be called God because he represents God. Here now is episode 163, Jesus, God's Agent. Essentially, the question is, is Jesus God? And really, what a lot of this turns on is what I call the principle of agency. It's not my, I didn't invent that phrase, but the idea of agency and representation. And we'll get to that in a, in a minute. This is the Shema. Uh, it says on the top, Devarim, which is the word, words. <laughs> and that's what Hebrew people call Deuteronomy. So this is Deuteronomy 6.4, and you can see that it's in English down here. Okay, so, uh, and then on the top there, it's in Hebrew. It says, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. That's the, the first line there. And then uh, the second line is, Ve'ahavta et Yahweh Elohecha, V'chol Levavcha, Uvchol Nefshacha, no, Nefshacha, excuse me, Uvchol Medecha. Okay, that's, that's really hard, but there we have it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the heart of any dialogue, biblically, about God. This is always the heart. Anything else you want to say is a branch from this tree, but this is the trunk. It's always the trunk, and we know that because... When they asked Jesus, I'll get to this in a minute, but when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest, this is what he said. But not just Jesus, all Jews, even to this day. doesn't matter if they're Orthodox, if they're liberal, if they're somewhere in the middle, or Hasidic, if they're in Israel. Even if they don't believe in the Bible, they still will say this. What I want to draw your attention to here is the fact that that says Yahweh or Yehovah, depending on how you pronounce it, okay? This is where we get the word Jehovah in English from. That comes into our English versions as the Lord. But it's not the word Lord. I think most of you already know this, but it's not really the word Lord in Hebrew. The word Lord is Adonai. This doesn't say Adonai. It has the four letters, what we call the Tetragrammaton, and it means Yahweh or Yehovah, probably is a little bit better pronunciation, but I'm not trying to freak anybody out tonight. All right, so the, this is the four-letter name of God. So if we, if we translate this down here a little better, it'll go like this. Hero Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now this right here, this word one, I have it highlighted above too, is echad. It's just the normal word for one if you're counting in Hebrew. So one, two, three, right? Echad is the first word. I didn't learn two and three yet in my Hebrew studies or else I would count for you. Did you learn two and three? Yeah, we didn't learn that yet. We're, we're taking the... 
we're taking this slow, uh, this slow approach. But uh, maybe in a couple of years we'll be able to tell you what the number two is in Hebrew. <laughs> but uh, I know one. I know. Yeah, I know one is a chad. And so this is the center of the controversy that later comes in when people are starting to say, no, God is two in one, or, and then eventually, that's in 325, and then in 381, they say God is three in one. Um, and yet, the biblical witness is that God is one. And, it, and, and it's important to realize here that it doesn't, it's not just saying God is one, it's saying Yahweh is one. Yahweh is God, Yahweh is one. Yahweh is a name, a name always identifies, unless you're speaking figuratively, like uh, you name a boat or something, but a name designates a person. It de designates an individual. It designates one individual. Dog, cat, human, God, angel. Angels have names, right? Michael. That, it, that designates one individual. I mean, there could be multiple Michaels, but there's only one meant by that name, usually in the context some pretty letters there. It just says Shema Yisrael. And in this case, the Jews do substitute the word Adonai in. Whereas over here, you can see, even if you can't read the letters, you can see it's a different word there. They look different, right? You see that? So this is something that the Jews have done for a long time because they feel the name of God is too holy to say. The name Yahweh or Yehovah is too holy to say, so they just say Lord instead. And that's why in our, all our translations of the Old Testament, they say Lord and actually, instead of actually saying God's name. It's, it's a leftover tradition from the Jews. And, you know, I think it's great that they wanted to keep God's name holy. Uh, but on the downside, it's sad that we lose out the original flavor that is actually in the Bible of God's name over 6,000 times. All right, so monotheism is the idea from Merriam-Webster, the belief that there's only one God. So when if I say monotheism, that's what I mean, the belief that there's only one God. This shows up throughout the Bible. Let's take a look at this one in our Bibles. I don't have it printed on, on the screen here, but Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. What I was look, or looking at with you a minute ago was the Shema. That's Deuteronomy 6. So this is right before it. This is Deuteronomy 4. Verses 32 to 39 is a retelling by Moses of what had happened 40 years earlier when God came down on the mountain and he gave the Ten Commandments. So now that happened to that generation. That generation all died. It's 40 years later. We have a new generation. They're about to enter the Promised Land. And Deuteronomy, as a whole book, is telling that new generation, this is how... You think about God, this is how you live as someone in covenant with God. And so in 4.32, he says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing has, as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Moses is saying, look guys, it's a big deal what God did 40 years ago. It's unusual. Gods don't usually do that. This is special. Verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh is God. This is a key verse. 
Yahweh is God. Simple definition. Only two words in Hebrew. There is no other besides Him. Now notice the word Him there. This is critical. The word Him is what we call a third person pronoun. It's a third person, you know, like a first person would be I, second person is you, third person is he, she, or it. Singular. That's not the, the main point I want to make here. The main point I want to make here is that the pronoun is singular. It's not plural. So the definition in verse 35 here is plain as day. Yahweh is God. There is no other besides Him. It doesn't say besides them. It says Him. And then we keep going. Verse 36. Out of heaven He, notice again the singular pronoun, He let you hear His voice that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Verse 39, another key verse. Know therefore today and lay it to heart that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. So Moses is telling this generation, look, this is the way it works. Yahweh is God. There's no other besides Him. Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth. Beneath, there is no other. So then he goes in chapter 5. You can see he tells them the, the Ten Commandments, right? So like 5 verse 6. This is when God first spoke to His people. And he said, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice again, the singular pronoun. This case is a first-person pronoun, I. Right? I'm, I'm not trying to be annoying here with the grammar, but it is the function of grammar to specify the number of individuals speaking or being spoken about. Now, let's take a look at what Jesus says. Mark chapter 12. The Shema is a big deal to all Jews like I mentioned earlier. It's the, the first thing you teach your kid. It's the last thing you want to say while you're dying. It's an old rabbinic tradition that comes down to us from the second century uh, after Christ, where Rabbi Akiva was being flayed alive by the Roman soldiers because after the Great Rebellion in 135, the Bar Kokhba revolt, Rabbi Akiva continued to teach Torah. He continued to teach the law of Israel to other Israelites, to other Jews, and he was caught. So they were literally cutting the skin off his body. He was saying this over and over, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He was saying it over and over and over again. And then as he died, he said the last word, Echad, and he, and he kind of drew it out, Echad, and then he died. And so from that day forward, Jews want to say this when they die. It's not a commandment, but it's, it's something that's deep within the heart that this is the core identity of the people. So it's no surprise that when they asked Jesus, the scribe, the expert, he came up with the Shema right away. It wasn't like he had to think about it. Uh, Mark 12, 28 says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, here it is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater 
than these. So Jesus puts his stamp of authority on the Jewish creed, the center, the heart of the Torah, which is the center and the heart of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, they call it the Bible, because they don't have the New Testament. <laughs> but um, Jesus says, no, that's it. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, that's the greatest commandment. Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself, that is the second great commandment. These two together sum up what is most important. The scribe responds in verse 32 and says, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he, notice again the singular pronoun, he is one and there is no other besides him. So he quotes back to Jesus, Deuteronomy 4.35, which we just read. So what do we have here? We have Jesus saying the Lord is one. The Lord is God. The Lord is one. Love him with everything. We have the scribe coming back saying, you're right, he is one, there's no other besides him. And now this is the point where Jesus says, well, actually, it's a little more complicated. Or actually, I'm also God. This is where we would expect to see that. If that were the case, let's see what Jesus does. Verse 33, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus agrees with the guy. He compliments the guy. He says, you know, you're not far off from the kingdom of God. You know, kingdom of God is generally eternal life, as Jesus uses it. Not exactly equivalent, but, you know, roughly equivalent to eternal life. I mean, like, look, man, you're... The scribe checks out Jesus. Jesus gives a good answer. The scribe says, yeah, I totally agree. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. It's one of the rare moments where Jesus is tested, and they both kind of shake hands and smile and leave, and everyone's happy. Usually, Jesus blows them up, right? Uh, but not this guy. They end up agreeing. But that's not all the scripture there is about who God is. There are dozens of texts, dozens, that stress that God is one or that he is a single individual. Psalm 83:18 says that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. So once again, you have this exclusive language here, alone, and then Yahweh is the reference. Or in the New Testament, how about 1 Timothy 2:5? For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, right? So you have over here, you have God, and over here you have humanity, you have these two sides. What's wrong with God and humanity? We're not in fellowship. We're not connected. We're, there's conflict between God and humanity. We sin. We rebel. We're not one with God. So what do you need? You need a mediator, right? And Jesus is the mediator who goes between God and humanity. Jesus himself, it says in the verse, belongs to the class man, or as the Catholic Bible renders it, human. It's the same word in Greek, man, human. So, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, you have, you have God, you have, you know, humanity over here. You've got Jesus, right? And the thing is, Jesus has not offended God because he hasn't sinned. And Jesus represents humanity because he is a human. He's the perfect mediator as the second Adam, as, as the one who did everything right. So, this, this verse, I think, is really powerful. There's one God. There's one meter between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And then Jesus himself 
when he was praying to the Father, said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So he mentions himself as distinct or separate from the only true God. Just a, a couple more because these are so fun. John 5, 43 to 45, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. This is the normal way Jesus talks in the Gospel of John. The normal way he talks is, the Father has sent me, I'm doing the Father's will, I'm doing the Father's works, I'm speaking the Father's words. I come in His name, I speak on His authority, I did not come on my own initiative. He says it dozens of times. Well, at least a dozen times. Uh, he says that the Father sent Him 40 times in the Gospel of John. I mean, it's like, if you don't get that point, you're reading it wrong, or you're not reading it closely enough, I guess. I think you would get the point if you read it. All right, so I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Jesus is talking to his enemies, his critics, the, uh, the people that don't believe in him. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you not think that I will accuse you to the Father? So Jesus, just this, he's just being casual. He's not making a big theological point. He's just being casual. He's like, look, I've come in my Father's name. You don't accept him. There's only one God. You know, he's, he's not saying to them, I'm God. He's saying to them, my Father is God. And, and they recognized that as well. That wasn't controversial. The, the controversial thing was whether or not Jesus was really speaking for God or if he was a false prophet, a false Messiah. John 8, 41, you are doing the works of your Father. This is the Who's Your Daddy dialogue in John chapter 8. You're doing the works of your Father did. They say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. All right, so this is the, the non-believing, critical Jews who just accused Jesus of being a bastard. And they believe that they have one Father, even God. For them, it's simple. And so it is for Jews to this day. There's one, fa one God, just the Father. It's simple. And Jesus doesn't dispute that. He doesn't say, well, you guys, are, you guys are clueless. No, he says, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God. And I am here. You see, you see how Jesus makes a distinction there? He doesn't say to them, look, you guys got it totally wrong. He says, no, that's fine, but I came from God. And if you really love him, you should love me too. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. All right, just a, just a couple more. Quick. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. Paul says that, like, duh, everybody knows that. There's no God but one. It's like easy for them. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. Who's the one God, Paul? The Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So you have one God and one Lord. Now, it's important to keep in mind that Lord was a very flexible word in their language. And it, it could be re referred to God. You know, God is called Lord. L Lord just means master, boss, person in charge, right? Ephesians 4 says uh, in verse 4, there's one body. This is the list of ones that every, all Christians should agree to. There's one body, one spirit, uh, just as you recall, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So the, the Lord here is referring to Jesus, which is a typical thing you see in the epistles of Paul. He, he loves to call Jesus Lord. 
and he loves to call him Christ or Messiah too, but Lord is his, his primary prefer, preference, uh, preferential title for Jesus. There are also verses where God is called Lord. You're right. I mean, that, that's very contradictory. That's all. It can be confusing. I totally agree. I, th I, think, I think you've kind of put your finger on the, uh, uh, maybe one of the origins of why there's a disagreement on this subject, that there is confusion with the word Lord. There's an ambiguity in the word Lord. Um, the, the person I always think of that's called Lord a ton in the Old Testament is David, King David. Uh, everyone calls him Lord. And nobody's confused that he's God. Moving on, Jude uh, verse 25 says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there it is, very clearly distinguished. You have the only God, our Savior, and then you have Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, and dominion, and authority, and so on. All right. I'm not going to read the, these verses. These are what I call subordinationist texts. They're all verses in which Jesus says something. Well, these ones up here are all ones in which Jesus says something like, the Father is greater than I, John 14, 28. I have not come on my own initiative. He sent me. The, these sorts of things where he's always deferring to God as if God is his superior. And then Paul does the same thing several times, three times in 1 Corinthians. Paul says the head of God is, or the head of Christ is God or something like that that there are these ranking differences between the two. Now let's get to the interesting stuff, shall we? So there are texts in which Jesus may be called God in the New Testament. Okay. Now the first classification of these texts are 1 Timothy 3.16 and John 1.18. These are both verses in which there are manuscript differences. So, as you probably know, the, the New Testament that we have is based on over 5,000 Greek manuscripts that scholars compare with each other to see which is the original reading. And there's a whole science dedicated to that, and they're pretty darn good at it. But it's not perfect. There are, there's about 1% of the New Testament where they're, where they're not 100% sure. And they know, it, they know what the options are, but they're, they're not sure which one of the options are. You know, so they give them different ratings, like an A rating, a B rating, a C rating. And a D rating means they really don't have a clue. And there are very, very few D, D ratings, right? Um, so these are two texts in which Jesus is called God, but they have manuscript issues. So if you read one translation, it's going to call him God, and you read another translation, it's not going to call him God, okay? Uh, the second classification are these ones that have translation issues. So we, we're sure what the Greek text says. We don't have multiple Greek texts, but we're not sure how to translate it into English. The way you know there is a translation issue is you just compare multiple Bibles and you'll see one doing it this way and another one doing that way. If you have a decent Bible with footnotes, they will give you a footnote on these verses and say other translations do it this way. That's, that's pretty typical. So there are one, two, three, four, five in this classification. Acts 20, 28, Romans 9, 5, Titus 2, 13, 2 Thessalonians 1, 12, 2 Peter 1, 1. All three of these, in particular, are a double construction where it talks about God and Jesus. There are some scholars, especially those who strongly support the Trinity idea, that use what's called the Granville-Sharp rule, which is a grammatical rule that's not found in major Greek textbooks, uh, but it was designed by somebody who's trying to prove Jesus is God. So, excuse me if I don't like fall you know, down and worship that rule. It, it may be legitimate or it may not be legitimate. 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take a strong position on it. Different like I'm telling you, different translations differ on this. Okay, they have they translate it differently. So these all depend on what translation you read. First John five twenty depends on your interpretation. Totally inter depends on your interpretation. It's a it's more of a grammatical ambiguity. The translation is accurate. It's just like some people are going to read it and they're going to see Jesus being called God there. Other people are going to read that and they're not going to see Jesus being called God there. Uh, so I'll leave you to look that one up, First John 5.20, if you're interested. I'm sure you can see that it could go either way. But none of that's really interesting here. I mean, it's interesting, but it's not what I want to focus on. What I want to focus is on are these two slugger verses. John 20.28 20, and Hebrews 1.8 unambiguously call Jesus God. And so whatever theology you have has to deal with these verses. There's no manuscript issue. There's no textual issue. There's no translation issue. The only question is, how in the world does this make It's a theological issue. So the question is, if the Bible disagrees with your theology, what do you think should change? No, let's just change the Bible. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Let's change our theology. And, and so we want a theology that's robust enough to accept the fact that Jesus has called God at least twice, maybe up to ten times, depending on which way you go on all these other ones. But throughout the rest of the scriptures, the Father, Yahweh, is called the only true God, and it's very clear that there are no other gods beside him. So that's what I'm, I'm hoping to, to get into with you. In order to do that, I want to show you what the dictionaries say on the word God itself. Because, believe it or not, the dictionaries already know the answer. <laughs> so we don't really have to do that much research. But we will, we will do the research anyhow, because we're, we want to cross the T's and dot the I's. But this is uh, the word Elohim from the Brown Driver and Briggs Hebrew lexicon. It's a standard, it's not a weirdo lexicon, it's a standard lexicon that people that don't have an extra 200 bucks laying around to buy the Halot uh, use. So this is the word Elohim here. You can see definition number one, plural number, Elohim. Definition number one for the word God in this lexicon is rulers, judges, either as divine representatives at sacred places or as reflecting divine majesty and power. So these are, this is any ruler or any judge. You know the judges of Israel, right? This is, this is not a deity. This is somebody that is being called God who is a ruler or a judge. And then definition two, anything that is a god or a goddess, Dagon, Chemosh, and so on. Definition three, obviously the true God, the lion's share of the meanings. Uh, Yahweh is God in truth, Jeremiah 10.10. 10. All right, another, I'm just going to show you three, okay? The second is a Greek lexicon for the word theos. Theos is the word God in, he, in Greek. This is, this is not going to surprise you. The supreme divine being, duh, right? God means God, all right? But it can also mean an idol. It can also mean the devil. It can also mean divine. And they note there John 1, 1, B, which is fascinating for other reasons we won't get into. And then here is the really interesting fact that, you know, if you're reading this dictionary entry, like who looks up the word God in the dictionary anyhow? Because everybody who starts Greek already knows theos. You know, it's like a typical word. Um, but if you look it up, here it is in the Freeburg Greek uh, lexicon. Figuratively, the word God can be used of persons worthy of reverence and respect as magistrates and judges. And then they note John 10.34. We're going to look at that in just a minute. Last one. 
Whew. Thayer's Greek lexicon for Theos says, general appellation for deities or divinities. And then look at this. Whether Christ is called God must be determined from, and then they give a bunch of references, John 1.1, John 20.28, 1 John 5.20. These verses should be somewhat familiar. I just showed you them. Uh, Hebrews 1.8. And then Thayer says, the matter is still in dispute among the theologians, uh, whether Christ should be called God or not at the time of the writing of this. And it depends also which theologians you ask, <laughs> as you might imagine, right? I want to focus on definition number four here. Theos is used of whatever can in any respect be likened to God or resembles him in any way. Hebraistically, <laughs> Hebraistically equivalent to God's representative or vicegerent of magistrates and judges, John 10.34 again. Well, let me tell you this. John 10.34 quotes Psalm 82.6, so that's why they have them both there. We're going to look at both of those in a minute. I love this one. Hebraistically, so this is a Greek dictionary saying, look, the way the Hebrews use this re can refer to God's representative. All right, now, this is the usages that I see throughout the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament. The main focus here is the Old Testament because that's uh, what sets up the New Testament and gives us a lot of definitions, understandings. So these are God's agents or representatives that I see either speaking as if they're God or getting called God. The first class right here are the angels. Did you know that angels in the Bible speak and stand in for God as if they are God? Look at this one, Exodus 3. And Moses said, verse 3, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. You know this, right? Moses and the burning bush. Verse 4, when Yahweh saw that he, Moses, turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. Or maybe it was more like, Moses! Probably wasn't Moses, Moses. I don't know. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. And he said to him, here I am. He says, take off your sandals, this holy ground, all the rest of this. Look at verse 6. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Is this God speaking to him in the bush? Yes. Sure seems like it. Who is talking to Moses here? Well, it says God, but if you back up one verse, you'll see that it's not God, it's an angel. And the angel is speaking in the first person as if that angel is himself God. Look at this in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside. Verse 4, when Yahweh saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush through the angel. So if you just start in verse 3, it sounds everything sounds like it's God, 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 but if you start in any verse before verse 3, you can see that it's really an angel that's there. We see the same thing when it comes to the giving of the Ten Commandments. When God gives the Ten Commandments, He comes down on the mountain, He torches the mountain, He shakes the mountain, He has the trumpet sound, all of this. He says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. God's not actually even there. Once again, according to Acts chapter 7, verse 53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Or Hebrews 2.2, 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, he goes on from there. If you read the first three chapters of Hebrews, you can see that what, what he's doing there is comparing the law to uh, the new covenant in Christ. And he says the law was given by angels once again. And this makes perfect sense. God says to Moses, you can't see my face and live. 
You know, if God is physically present in a personal way, people die. <laughs> so uh, he has mediators. He has uh, representatives that he sends. Or he, he, can, he can, like, do something in our world, but I don't, I don't believe that he can be physically present, not in the way that he will be in the end, or that he was in the beginning. Because, like I said, people die. So, but that's not the only place that says angels are gods. Psalm 8.5 says, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, if you read the ESV. Psalm 8.5 says, You have made him a little lower than God, if you read the NASB. It's the word Elohim in Hebrew. In the New Testament, the quotation from Hebrews 2.7 says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Right? So we have heavenly beings, we have God, we have the angels. Totally equivalent terms. In the Old Testament, it is the word Elohim, which is the word translated God. In the New Testament, it, it translates that using the word angels because it recognizes that this usage of Elohim is really referring to angels. Does that make sense? You guys clear on that? that and then Satan is called God in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world. Uh, so angels can be called gods. So that's the first classification. I'm going to just kind of speed through this a little bit because time is short. The second classification are the prophets, okay? Specifically, the first two there, Exodus 4 and Exodus 7, Exodus 4, 14 and 16, Exodus 7, 1 to 2, Moses is called God. And I, I just have to at least show you this one thing here. In, in the first case, Exodus 4, 16, God says, you shall speak, he, Aaron, shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your, Moses' mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Moses is like God. He's going to give Aaron the words. Aaron's like a prophet. He's going to tell him to Pharaoh. And it says, as, as God. It's not calling him God. It's saying he's as God. This is the interesting one. Exodus 7 says, And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. I've made you Elohim to Pharaoh. You see it? The scripture actually says, I have made you God to Pharaoh. God says to Moses, I've made you God to Pharaoh, or I've given you God, to be God to Pharaoh. The translation, the ESV didn't like that, so they put this word like in. The NASB was a little more honest. They put as in, and then put it in italics to indicate that it's added, and it's not in the original. So it's because we're nervous about this. We don't have this in our culture. We don't call humans gods. It's weird. But look, we can't change the Bible based on our culture. You know what I mean? We have to... You know, if we want to be biblical, we need to get on board with what it says. And then, of course, other prophets, they, that's, that's totally typical for prophets. They always say, thus says Yahweh, and they speak as I, even in prophecy, right? You, you've heard that before, so we don't need to read that one. All right, judges. The judges of Israel are called gods in Exodus 21, verse 6, and Exodus 22, verse 8. We're not going to look at it. We don't have time. But you can look it up on your own, compare translations. Some of them are going to say God. Some of them are going to say judges, and that's why when I showed you the lexicons, they said God can be used for judges. Uh, Psalm 82 is much more significant. Psalm 82, Jesus quotes this part right, right here. That's the part Jesus quotes. Psalm 82, 1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. What? <laughs> and God is going to judge the gods. You see that? How long, God's asking the gods, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Verse 6, I said, God said, you are gods, 
sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So the NIV study Bible, typical evangelical reference, as the great king and the judge of all the earth who loves justice and judges the nations in righteousness, he's seen calling to account those responsible for defending the weak and oppress on earth. An early rabbinic interpretation, see John 10, 34-35, understood the gods to be unjust rulers and judges in Israel, of whom there were many. Psalm, uh, this is another note from the NIV Study Bible. In the language of the Old Testament, and in accordance with the conceptual world of the ancient Near East, rulers and judges, as deputies of the heavenly king, could be given the honorific title God, or be called Son of God. doesn't make the ruler God. doesn't make the judge God. It just gives that person the title because they're representing God. They're doing the justice of God. They're carrying out God's law in the, uh, among the people. And Barnes' note says the same thing. All right. Last two, Psalm 45 and Isaiah 9-6 are both examples where kings of Israel are called God. In the first case, I don't believe at all that it's prophetic. I think this is a king that lived and that died and that got married and that was doing well in life. Uh, and I say that because as you read on, on in the psalm, it's a, it's a wedding psalm and <laughs> he gets married to this lady that is very attractive. All right, so Psalm 45 starts off, this is the court poet. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. I mean, the dude could write. You got to give him that, right? Uh, you, king, are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Totally typical, right? Court poet going on about the king, how he's so great. Then we get to verse 6, and it gets a little weird. Your throne, O God. All right, now, did he just call the king God, or did he just switch, and now he's talking to God? Let's, let's read on. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of right, uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. Whoa. He's talking to God, and he says, God, your God. God's got a God. He's calling the king of Israel God here in this lower representational sense. And he's saying, look, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is a text where the king of Israel is called God. I know I'm doing it fast here. If you want to go back and, and slowly read through all of Psalm 45, you'll see this. And it's not one of these things that has like... A, Every translation is going to be different. You Read it whatever translation you want. You'll see the same thing. The study note in the NET Bible, I could pick a lot of different things, but this is just an easy one that you can get at Bible.org and check yourself. Uh, the king is clearly the addressee here when he says God, as in verses 2 through 5 and 7 through 9. That's the rest of the psalm. Rather than taking the statement at face value, many prefer to amend the text. That's to change the Bible. Because the concept of deifying the earthly king is foreign to ancient Israelite thinking. However, it is preferable to retain the text and take this statement as another instance of royal hyperbole that permeates the royal psalms. Because the Davidic king is God's vice-regent on earth, the psalmist addresses him as if he were God incarnate. God energizes the king for battle and accomplishes justice through him. A similar use of hyperbole occurs or appears in Isaiah 9.6, where the ideal Davidic king of the eschaton is given the title Mighty God. Given the title. Using God as a title. We're used to using God as a name. 
God is not a name. God's name is Yahweh. God is a title, and it can be given to angels, can be given to judges of Israel, can be given to prophet or pro like Moses, thinking of him as a prophet, can be given to him, and it can be given to the king of Israel. Okay, so my point is to say, if Jesus is called God twice in the New Testament, or maybe ten times, I don't think we should lose our stuff over it. Accept the fact. He's, he's called God. But what does it mean? It means that he represents God, just like the judges, because Jesus is the ultimate judge. Just like the angels, because Jesus is the ultimate messenger. Just like the prophets, because Jesus is the ultimate prophet. And just like the kings, because he is the king of kings. It makes perfect sense that you would call this one, of, among all others, God. And the amazing thing about it is in those two texts I showed you before, right? Hebrews 1.8 is actually quoting Psalm 45 that we just read. Psalm 45 is the one where it says, God, your God. Talking to the king of Israel, somebody in the past, now this text is then applied to Jesus, finds a secondary fulfillment in Jesus, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is talking about the Son. So we know that one of these two texts, undisputed texts, calls Jesus God in this representational or secondary sense. So my suggestion is that when Thomas calls Jesus my Lord and my God, that it also has that same meaning to it. And even if it's uncomfortable for us from a cultural perspective to call a human God, you know, that's our cultural baggage. We, should, we shouldn't adjust the Bible to our culture. We should adjust our own personal understanding to what the Bible says. But it gets a little better than that. I would like to read John 10, 34, because these are the words of Jesus ourself when he was accused of claiming to be God and see how Jesus handled that situation. John 10, 33. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, kill him, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. There it is. Like the, His critics are saying, you're a human being, but you're claiming to be God. How does Jesus respond? I am God. He levitates off the ground, and he says, your puny stones can't hurt me. No, he doesn't do that. I mean, if he's really God, why not, right? But instead, what does Jesus say? He uses a biblical argument, which is so Jesus, because he's a rabbi. It makes perfect sense. Jesus quotes their own Bible. He says, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? What? That's a quote from Psalm 82, verse 6. Jesus is quoting a text where God was calling the rulers of Israel gods. And he's saying to them, look, God called them gods. And then he goes on. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. That's what Jesus thinks he is doing. That's what he thinks his relationship is to God, that he is God's representative, the one in whom God is at work, the one through whom God is speaking and, and doing these things. And then notice that in verse 30, 33, they wanted to stone him. In verse 39, they sought to arrest him. His response garnered a, a diminishment of their rage. You know, they didn't, any, they didn't just throw the rocks at him. They didn't interpret him as, as, as doing what they were saying he was doing. And so they're like, all right, let's just arrest this guy. So that's John 10.30. One other... Last point, I'm just going to skip all this. Assuming Jesus is only called God twice 
out of the 1,317 occurrences of the word God in the New Testament, that would amount to 0.15%. Assuming that all of the disputed texts call Jesus God, a total of seven texts, this would bring our number up to nine, which would be 0.68%. What I'm saying to you is that over 1,300 times the Father is called God. If Jesus even gets seven or nine, it's still, like, you should still recognize there's something not even about this situation. Please note that this number is less than even 1%. This is not 68%. This is 0.68. Thus, even if we gave the benefit of the doubt to those saying that all nine texts call Jesus God, we all have to agree that these occurrences are sufficiently rare as to raise our suspicion, especially if the teaching of Christ's deity is supposed to be the major teaching of the New Testament. It is much more likely that Jesus is called God because he, this is my big final point, he represents God. Just like Moses did to Pharaoh, the judges did to Israel, the king did as God's anointed one, Jesus is the ultimate proxy, God's agent, through whom God's word became a human being and spoke to his people. Jesus was utterly transparent, always doing his father's works, pursuing his God's will, and speaking Yahweh's words, and thus can rightly be called God. He's not a separate God, but God's human representative. To meet Jesus is to meet God, not because he is God in himself, but because God was so at work within him. Well, that's it for this episode, and that's it for this whole series of episodes since the debate where we've been discussing the Trinity and Christology and trying to make sense of what the Bible teaches about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God's oneness. So if you would like to dig deeper, I do have an article on restitudio.org. Just go to the Articles tab, or I have a link in the show notes for this episode, an article which very much lays out the same information that I just went through here, but in a much more comprehensive manner called Explanations to Verses Commonly Used to Teach That Jesus is God. And that will serve to give you more examples and go into much more depth than I was able to do in in these few minutes here. And I'm excited to tell you that next time we're finally getting back to our theology class. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, I hope to have that out Thursday. And then we'll be going back to podcasts just once a week. I was trying to get these other episodes out as fast as possible, many times twice a week, which was a little bit of a hardship on me as far as a workload. But uh, going back to one a week, and hopefully that fits with your schedule as well. Don't want to overburden you. I'm sure you've got a lot going on in all of your lives as well. All right, well, that's it. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to join in the conversation, drop a comment or check out other resources, come on over to restitutio.org. Otherwise, I'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.